My name is Anna Orberry. I'm Johanna Tilkanen. And I'm Ben Horton. And you're listening to The Climate Briefing, a podcast from Chatham House. Hello and welcome back to The Climate Briefing. My name is Ben Horton and joining me down the line from sunny North London, I have my colleague Anna Arbery. How are you? Hi Ben, I'm fine. How are you doing? I'm very well. I'm delighted to be back in London after several months out in the countryside under lockdown. So it's good to be back and it's great to be back on the climate briefing. And this week we're going to be talking to you about the energy transition. So Anna, please explain to us what the energy transition is. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so when we talk about the energy transition, we're essentially talking about changing the global energy system and uh, shifting away from using fossil fuels to using low carbon sources of energy, like wind and solar, for example. And this type of shift is really important if you are to reach the goals of the Paris Agreement. So that is why we're talking about it here today on the podcast. And we have two really interesting speakers lined up. Ben, you did the first interview. Who do you talk to? So first up, we spoke to our colleague, Daniel Quiggin, who is from the Energy, Environment and Resources Programme at Chatham House. And he gave us a kind of overview of the energy transition, the policy tools that are available to encourage the energy transition and the state of play coming into 2020. Where was the energy transition? How much progress had been made? And then we also went on to think a bit about how the pandemic and the economic crisis that the pandemic has caused might affect that progress and how governments could mitigate that. And Anna, who did you speak to? So I spoke to Simon Sharp, who is uh, Deputy Director for COP26 campaigns in the UK government's cabinet office. And uh, just to give you some context, the UK government is running five international campaigns ahead of COP26, uh, which are focused on energy, transport, nature, finance and adaptation and resilience. And these campaigns bring together countries and other actors to accelerate change within these five areas. And Simon is leading the campaigns on energy, transport and nature. So he really plays a critical role in the UK government's preparations for COP26. We had a really interesting chat. We talked about what governments can do to promote the energy transition, what impact COVID-19 might have. And finally, we spoke quite a lot about COP26. Lovely. Sounds fascinating. We should just say before we kick off this episode that as ever... These interviews were recorded over the ubiquitous Zoom software. People are dealing with varying internet connections and distance, but we really appreciate your patience and we think that there is some really great insight to be drawn from listening. Let's have a listen. Okay, so we're back. And in the first interview for this episode of The Climate Briefing, I'm joined by Daniel Quiggin, who is a senior research fellow in the Energy, Environment and Resources Programme at Chatham House and friend of the pod, of course. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us today. No problem. Thanks for having me. So we're here just to set the scene on our topic this week, which is the energy transition. So I'm just going to give you a very, very (laughs) basic, but probably horribly broad question, Dan, to start with. Can you just tell us what we mean when we say the energy transition? So the energy system globally accounts for the majority of emissions or anthropogenic emissions, and they they account for around about two-thirds of emissions when you're looking at fossil fuels and the emissions thereof. So really, the energy system is incredibly important in attempting to stay within uh, 1.5 or 2 degrees Celsius of global warming and 
we must remember that that 1.5 or 2 degrees is critical because after that point, the science tells us that we expect a degree of runaway climate change where feedback mechanisms kick in, which means we don't know where temperature rise will end up. So there are lots of different carbon budgets that the International Panel on Climate Change set out, which define how much carbon the global community can emit between now and the end of century. And because the energy system accounts for the majority of those emissions, the energy transition really is talking about how we can decarbonise the energy system in order to mitigate those emissions and stay within those carbon budgets. So, for example, the IEA, so that's the International Energy Agency, and IRENA, the International Renewable Energy Agency, a few years ago published a very comprehensive energy transition scenario for the world, and they set out a carbon budget, which today stands around 630 gigatons of CO2 until the century's end. And that sounds like a lot of carbon that can be emitted between now and 2100. However, the current energy system emits around about 30 to 32 gigatons per annum. So if we extrapolate that out and say that the energy system continues to emit at today's rates, then the entire carbon budget would be exhausted by about 2040 about 20 years from now, which would then put the world on path to runaway climate change. So really, the energy transition is attempting to stretch out that carbon budget and prevent runaway climate change. Obviously, a lot of the conversations we've been having on this podcast have been reflecting back on the impact of the Paris Agreement. I just wondered if you could tell us a bit more about what provisions were made in the agreement that relate to the energy transition. Sure. So Paris really set out a new way for the global community to start addressing emissions. So under nationally determined contributions, each country sets out its own ambition and there's not a sort of given target set under Paris that each country has to achieve. It's very much trying to get each country to set its own ambition and targets and then for those targets to be reached. So each country has laid them out and broadly they don't sum up in aggregate to the energy system and wider anthropogenic emissions resulting in the world staying below 1.5 degrees worth of warming. So in the next round of NDCs, countries really need to raise their ambition to decarbonise the energy system significantly more to avert that runaway climate change. And the majority of progress that has happened already since around about 1990, is that the power system has been decarbonised somewhat in most countries. And the UK can be pleased with itself that it is a global leader and has managed to decarbonise its power sector much more rigorously and fully than many other countries. Yet the power sector is only one portion of the overall energy sector. So there are high temperature heat processes in industry which require 
coal and gas mainly. There's transport, obviously, and many people have heard of electric vehicles, but their deployment thus far has been relatively slow. There's heating, and heating is supplied by all sorts of different forms of fuels, and also aviation and shipping. And all of these sectors really haven't undergone all that much decarbonisation yet at all. So if we look across all countries and what Paris laid out and our current NDCs, really the energy transition needs to move into those sectors and enable those sectors to decarbonise. Otherwise, we don't really stand all that much chance of averting runaway climate change. So that's a big proportion of what the next round of NDC revision is about, is it's looking at the broader energy system away from the power sector, although the power sector is still important, and thinking about what countries can do in order to decarbonise the wider energy system. So you say more work needed, and that sounds pretty convincing, but I just wondered whether just thinking about the progress that has been made since the 90s, as you mentioned, has a lot of that been driven by governments? Is that very much a state-led change? Or is this something that we're seeing as a more kind of market-led phenomenon as renewable energies become more affordable and technology improves? That's a really good question. And like all good questions, the answer is complicated and a bit of both. Lovely. I would say, <laughs> I would say that lots of countries have done incredibly well, particularly within the EU, at driving the market to reduce costs of what are now defined as proven low-carbon technologies, such as wind, both onshore and offshore, solar photovoltaics, and increasingly lithium-ion batteries, both for stationary storage and for electric vehicles. And the way they've done that is by designing incentives and subsidies for those technologies such that more commercial entities within industry get involved and start manufacturing those technologies. And what we know is that every time you double your manufacturing capacity, depending on your technology you're looking at, that drives costs down significantly. So those costs for each doubling of manufacturing capacity fall by around 10 to 20%, depending on the technology you're looking at. And that really is the mechanism that has resulted in the scaling up and speeding up of the transition within the power sector that we've seen thus far. So just to reference a report that I think is incredibly interesting, Imperial College London produced a comprehensive investigation of what the yields, what the returns are for low carbon technologies versus their fossil fuel counterparts over a five-year period for different countries. And I won't go into each individual country, but just for, as an example, in the UK, an investor, a company can expect to get around about 75% returns over five years in solar and wind and other low-carbon technologies relative to just 9% in the fossil fuel industries, in the oil industry in particular. And that really is an indication that a lot of government incentives and subsidies have driven the market to lower those costs. And as you lower costs, that means that your return for investing in those technologies increases. And so that's really the main driver in the 
power sector that has led to this now very cost competitive offer of low carbon technologies. What we really need to do is replicate those mechanisms within other parts of the energy system. And at the moment, I would argue we're not seeing those at sufficient scale to drive the types of decarbonisation in the heating sector. Maybe arguably within the transport sector, but definitely not within industry, aviation and shipping. So governments have a huge role to play in sending the right signals to market through NDCs, which indicates their level of ambition, and then also setting the policy incentives, subsidies, tax breaks, whatever it may be, in order to drive that participation of the commercial entities will ultimately lower the cost. To bring us now up to date almost and, and to think about the situation in 2020, it's hard to ignore the impact that the COVID-19 pandemic has had on all aspects of government policy around the world and, and not least on the economy. And we've seen countries grappling with economic shock as a result of lockdown measures and rising unemployment. And it's been a, a major challenge. Do you think that COVID-19 has impacted the energy transition process that we're talking about? Yeah, I, I do. I, I think exactly how the impact pans out isn't yet fully understood. But given that the energy transition ultimately is trying to reduce emissions, our clearest benchmark of the impact of COVID-19 is that in Q1 of 2019, energy sector emissions globally fell by around 5%, which is a fairly substantial 5%, you know, we're talking single digits, but actually 5% in the context of historic emission reductions is actually quite substantial. And the IEA, the International Energy Agency, is forecasting that 2020 emissions will be about 8% lower relative to 2019. So from that benchmark, It feels like COVID, in a way, whilst the impacts, you know, on health and and the economy are devastating for many individuals, in terms of emissions, it's actually had a a fairly positive impact. But a really clear canary in the coal mine, I would say, is China, whose emissions did reduce initially, but we're already seeing a bounce back. So whilst they reduced by about 25% initially, They've bounced back beyond pre-crisis levels. And we saw that in the 2008 global financial crisis as well, that whilst emissions fell off, they then bounced back as economies recovered. And also governments start to change their policies in order to generate that economic recovery. They start generally to switch back to less progressive, less climate-friendly policies. So an example of that would be that the annual National People's Congress in Beijing, the last meeting, I think it was in June, didn't set a GDP energy intensity target. So in China, they have always looked at reducing emissions through what's called a GDP energy intensity target, which basically means the number of units of energy that you need to put into your economy in order to generate the same sort of growth. And historically, they've set targets for for that metric, but they didn't at the last annual meeting. And that's an indication that China, as well as other countries, are starting to look at old technologies, fossil fuel technologies, 
in order to generate the same sort of growth going forward. The other dynamic, I would say, that's really important in thinking about the energy transition is that oil prices are likely to remain low for quite some time. And so many people would argue that those low oil prices could undermine the cost competitiveness of many renewables. So that's a dynamic that we're not really clear how it's going to pan out at the moment. But the other side of the coin is that whilst those low oil prices mean that maybe in the short to medium term, oil looks more competitive and therefore more people might consume oil rather than other forms of energy, actually over the medium to long term, what it's likely to mean is that investment in the extraction and development of new oil fields is likely to be lower. So, oil fields are incredibly expensive to develop, and an investor will look at those low oil prices currently and say, well, will I get the same return going forward on those oil wells as I might otherwise do? So, eventually, that will mean that there's less oil being supplied in the system because we don't invest in developing new oil fields. And many argue that that might lead to a price spike in the mid-2020s in the price of oil. And that would then mean that over the medium to long term, actually renewables look far more cost competitive and that might then drive an accelerated energy transition. So I think the answer around will COVID speed up or, or slow down the transition is very much dependent on what time frame you're looking at. And another really important dynamic to hold in our minds when we're thinking about that is that electric vehicles are rapidly decreasing in cost and they directly compete with oil or demand for oil. And it's likely that the electric vehicles will reach cost competitiveness globally with internal combustion engines, your everyday car, in the mid-2020s, exactly when we're expecting this oil spike to occur. So we might see an inflection point in the mid-2020s where we go from a an accelerating energy transition that we've seen over the last five to ten years to a real tip where demand for oil and other fossil fuels really starts to rapidly decrease and renewables, batteries, electric vehicles start to take over. So th- it really depends on on the time frame that that we're looking at there. So I've got just one more question to ask then, which is part of the response of governments to the coronavirus pandemic across the world, I think, but I mean, it's particularly covered in the UK, is is this call for a green recovery from the economic crisis. And I just wondered if we were to engage in some speculative thinking and you were in charge of of running the UK government's green recovery project, (laughs) what sort of measures you think would be important to implement if that is really what we need to achieve if we want to ensure that climate friendly issues are properly integrated into this economic recovery what would governments do again a very good question i'm not sure that the government would ever put me in charge of green recovery however if they did i would say let's first look at the current situation so of the 50 largest economies only 0.2% of committed recovery packages are at low carbon sectors. 
So that's really, really, really important to hold in our minds because as we discussed earlier, where governments target stimulus, investment, subsidies, etc., indicates to the market where they should be putting their money in order to get good returns. And if the government doesn't target its funding, its investment at the right sectors, i.e., you know, we would argue low carbon sectors, then it's the wrong signal to the market and the market just won't respond. So I think going forward, that needs to change. We need to see far more ambitious funding targeted at low carbon sectors that will not only deliver long-term energy transition in terms of hydrogen development, for example, which is a really crucial technology, or speeding up the deployment of electric vehicle charging stations, which is integral to get people using electric vehicles, but also at sectors that are proven now, such as solar and wind, that can deliver jobs. So we know that lots of people have been losing their jobs, really sadly, and the government rightly has an obligation and responsibility to ensure that those families have incomes going forward. And there's a lot of work and a lot of evidence that shows that low-carbon sectors, pound for pound, dollar for dollar, generate more jobs than their fossil fuel counterparts. So one of the numbers that sort of floats around is that for every million pound, every million dollars, sorry, of, of spending by governments, you get about 7.7, 7.5 jobs in the low-carbon sectors compared to around 2.5 in fossil fuel sectors. So it makes economic sense as well as generating jobs, which is, you know, the clear thing that we need to do in order to get economies back on track, to invest in those low-carbon sectors now, such that the energy transition is accelerated and jobs are provided in the future. So for me, that would be the main thing that governments can do that we're not seeing at the moment. And we could also see indirect investment through returning to feed-in tariffs and other subsidies that historically governments have used, but they've scaled back because they felt that actually the cost competitiveness of solar and wind has fallen so much that actually to keep subsidising them would be, in their mind, unfair. So we could see a return to those sorts of subsidies, so indirect investment, to accelerate the deployment of those proven technologies, mitigate climate change, or potentially mitigate climate change and create jobs. And just one last point on that. So conceptually, the reason that these sectors generate so many jobs relative to fossil fuel sectors is they are what's called capex heavy and opex light. So they require lots of investment to get them in the ground, but because they don't require fuel input, they don't require ongoing operational expenditure, which is what opex is. Whereas fossil fuels power stations, refineries, etc., are relatively capex light, so capital expenditure light. So to build the power station, to build the refinery is, is relatively inexpensive. But because they're continuously using and consuming and producing fuels and power through coal, oil and gas, they require ongoing maintenance and so on. And what that means is if we deploy lots of renewables we have to keep doing lots of projects, so 
putting in lots of solar farms or lots of wind turbines over and over again. And that requires lots of labor, lots of employment. So conceptually, it's their sort of modular nature where we have to keep putting them in the ground in order to get the power output that generates these jobs. So governments really should be cottoning on to the fact that it's a win-win. You generate jobs and you potentially mitigate climate change and it's cheaper pound for pound relative to fossil fuels in generating jobs for the carbon sector. It's a win-win and I think that's a great place to end. Daniel Quiggin, thank you so much for joining us today. No problem. Thank you very much for having me, Ben. I really look forward to listening to the podcast. So, I'm delighted to be joined by Simon Sharp, who is Deputy Director for COP26 campaigns in the UK government's Cabinet Office. Simon, thank you so much for joining us today. Morning, Anna. Good to be with you. So, in this episode, we're focusing on the energy transition. And we have already spoken to Dan Quiggin, who provided us with an introduction to the topic. So, Simon, what I'd like to begin by asking you is what governments can do to promote the energy transition. Sure. Well, one thing to say at the beginning is, of course, energy is used all across the economy. Often when people say energy, they think of electricity. But in the UK, that's only about 20% of our primary energy consumption. So the power sector is enormously important. It's about a quarter of global emissions. But other energy-using sectors that are also hugely important, industry, transport, and buildings, and of course, agriculture and land use actually has a lot to do with energy as well, or the food that we eat, that's the energy that powers our bodies. But if we talk about the power sector, we're in a really interesting phase where a transition to clean power is really beginning to take off. More than half of new power additions globally are now renewables, mainly wind and solar. And in about two-thirds of the countries of the world, those are now the cheapest new forms of power, cheaper than coal and cheaper than gas. And it's worth looking at that in its historical perspective. Over the last half century or so, the cost of solar has come down about 3,000 times. So it's on an incredibly steep trajectory of cost reduction. And just to give an idea of the sorts of things governments can do, in the UK, one of our own real national success stories has been offshore wind. Back about a a decade ago, there were quite respected economists who were saying offshore wind was a crazy idea. One of them said it was one of the most expensive ways of reducing emissions known to man. And at the time, of, of course, it was. But the government invested very heavily in research and development And then it moved on from there to subsidizing deployment, first in quite small amounts and then gradually growing. And then it moved on from there to having competitive auctions for deployment of offshore wind and also working with with the whole infrastructure system that it's a part of to incorporate that technology. And now the latest contracts signed for offshore wind power in the UK are actually expected to bring in power at a price that's cheaper than the market price, if the market price in the future is similar to what it was in the past. So that means every time we generate power from offshore wind, as well as it being zero emission power, it will also pay back money to the treasury that we can spend on anything we like. So the lesson from that is first investment in research and development, second, very carefully constructed policies to support deployment. And if you do that, you create the market the finance flows into it, 
the businesses innovate, the technology gets better and the costs come down. And then you, you enter a position where it's no longer about an economic cost to reduce emissions. It's an economic benefit and it's, it's a massive win. You mentioned the UK example, but I guess these lessons, they're valid for any government? Absolutely. The principles are the same. And if you look at the power sector now, then, as I say, in most countries in the world, the cheapest thing to do is install renewables. But countries are at very different stages and they have very different markets. And the cost in each market really depends on the policy environment in each country. Have they set the market up in a way that it's able to accept renewables and allow them to compete on an equal basis with the incumbent technologies? like coal and gas, that makes a huge difference. So one of the very important things that we can do internationally is share best practice in market design or something that Chatham House colleagues have called investment-grade policy. That's not easy to do. The power sector is a complicated sector, but it, it has been done. Some countries are, are very far ahead in that, and sharing that best practice can help others to catch up. So governments around the world are currently working on updating their NDCs. I was wondering how much of a focus has there been on renewable energy in the updated NDCs that have been submitted to date? So the first thing to say about NDCs is they are really important for translating the collective commitment in the Paris Agreement into individual commitments. Because in the Paris Agreement, countries all said we want to limit climate change to well below two degrees C, and pursue efforts to below one and a half degrees and avoid dangerous climate change. And that's a collective goal, but we'll only achieve that if we translate that into our individual actions. And that's why the UK has set a really strong NDC and a long-term target of net zero emissions by mid-century. And that's really the most important principle that we should all be aiming for net zero, because zero emissions is the only time when you reach that that the risks of climate change stop increasing. Anything above zero, you keep adding carbon to the atmosphere, the risks keep increasing. So we are really encouraging all countries to set a net zero target for whenever they possibly can. To date, I'd say uh, most NDCs have included something on the power sector. And the reason for that is it's the furthest ahead in the transition of all the big emitting sectors, power, land use, industry, transport, buildings, it's the power sector where the clean technologies are most mature. So many countries are reflecting that in the NDCs that they, they share. I think one of our aims has to be to really, of course, double down on that, go further in the power sector, but also work with countries to speed up transitions in other sectors too. So the UK government is, of course, hosting COP26, and you've decided to make clean energy a special theme for this conference. What does this actually mean? I mean, what is the UK doing concretely to promote clean energy in the COP26 context? I'll just explain before I get into clean energy what we mean by saying we, we have some campaigns for COP26, because people might be familiar with the idea of the negotiations where countries agree formally a negotiated text, and that's the process that leads to things like the collective decision to aim for keeping climate change well below two degrees, for example. So that's very important for that international consensus and agreement on collective intent. People will also be familiar with the nationally determined contributions, the NDCs, which we just talked about, where each country 
sets out its national actions and national targets. On top of those two things, or alongside them, the other thing we're doing with our COP26 presidency is running five campaigns in the areas of energy, nature, transport, finance, and adaptation and resilience. Those are five incredibly important areas for solving climate change, where we think we can make faster progress if countries work together. They can go faster together than they could do individually. And the logic for that, it really comes from the science. It's in, if you look at the IPCC report on one and a half degrees, in the point where it talks about what would we need to do to limit climate change to that kind of level, then it says we need rapid and far-reaching system transitions in the global economy at an unprecedented scale, at an almost unprecedented pace. A system transition is where you completely change the pattern of production and consumption and governance of goods and services in a part of the economy. So that's a really deep change. People would, would often think of moving from horses to cars as an example of that kind of transition. And clearly, if what you're trying to do is change the global economy, change a really important sector of it, you have a better chance of doing that quickly if you have different countries working together rather than each of them going off doing their own thing. So in these five areas, that's what we're trying to do. Now, the power sector, as I said, is a quarter of global emissions. And so that's one of the, the main areas we're focusing on, as you said, in, in the energy campaign. This is somewhere where, in fact, there's already been a, a greater degree of international coordination than people probably realize. In the early days, there was great investment in research and development from the US and Japan. Later on, Europe really led the way in first deployment. And then China came on board with, with massive investment in production. And it was the feedback between all of those countries doing those things that first accelerated the research and development later on gave larger economies of scale, which brought the cost down much faster, and now is allowing all countries in the world to access the results of that. So the question is, how do we make that go faster? We're in a position where clean energy is the cheapest in the power sector in almost all countries. And yet there are still around 50 countries planning new coal plants that adds up to a total of 500 gigawatts of coal. That's about five times as much as the total capacity of power generation in the UK. And that's on top of the 2,000 gigawatts of coal we've got already in existence. So what do we do about that? Well, one of the important things we need to do is lead by example, especially developed countries. So the UK, a few years ago, created the Powering Pass Coal Alliance, which is a group of countries committed to phasing out unabated coal from the power sector unabated, meaning it doesn't have carbon capture and storage attached. So we're committed ourselves to phasing out coal from the power sector by 2024. And this alliance, which has been growing over the last few years, it, it now covers something like a third of the coal capacity of the OECD countries. And this is really beginning to send a signal to investors and to policymakers worldwide that coal is on its way out of the power sector. And the economy responds to expectations. So this is a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy, self-fulfilling narrative. So one of our aims for COP26 is to keep on growing that alliance. And we're welcoming into it countries and also states, cities, and also utilities. There's a growing number of utilities that have committed to go 100% clean themselves and phase out coal. 
So that's, that's a leading by example part. A second element that's really important is practical assistance and sharing of best practice, and of course, often supported by investment. As we were saying just now, it's the market design that's so critical for attracting the investment in clean energy and making it low cost. And so international assistance in market design is one of the best tools we have. It's supported by international climate finance, the, the money that many countries contribute to support other countries in their transitions. This has been going on for some time and in many places has done very valuable work. What we want to do for COP26 is work with the expert agencies like the IEA and the International Renewable Energy Agency, the multilateral development banks, not just the World Bank, but the Asian Development Bank, the African Development Bank, and the countries that are internationally influential in this sector, so that we can actually bring a more coordinated and coherent effort to support countries in the policy changes that will attract new investment in clean energy. So we really hope that that 500 gigawatt global pipeline of global coal plants can be rapidly brought down and replaced with a pipeline of new clean energy. The one other aspect I should mention is that in some of the, the countries with very large existing coal power capacities, they also have large communities of people that are dependent on coal mining or coal power for their livelihoods. And that's incredibly important. And really, two things have to go together, the economic interests of those communities and the transition to clean energy. And if you don't get that right, the transition won't happen quickly or it won't happen well. So the just transition in the power sector is becoming more and more a focus. And what we want to look at is how can you really direct regional development efforts that are going on in those kind of countries so that they support a just transition as well as possible. And, and how is that work going on the just transition? I mean, I agree it's a really important objective, absolutely crucial. And I recognize there is an ambition, but can you see actual progress as well? Are these communities being supported in, a, in an adequate way? I think it's a growing area and it's fair to say that it's in relatively early stages, but there are examples of, of where it's being done. Germany is quite a notable example. They wanted to decide whether they could commit to a phase-out date for coal. Then they set up a coal commission and they invited onto it representatives of the local communities, the trade unions, as well as climate scientists and as well as utilities. And they all had a really collective effort to say, look, there's a difficult problem here. How do we solve it in a way that works for all of our interests? And they managed, and they managed to come up with a, a phase-out date for coal and a plan for working through it. But clearly, Germany is a developed country, and it's it's got good resources of its own. I think it's a much harder challenge in emerging economies where you have much larger numbers of people working in the sector But that is something that, as the international community, we have to face up to and we have to put our efforts together and provide the best support that we can. You mentioned uh, the 2024 deadline for phasing out coal in the UK. I mean, that's pretty soon. Will the goal be achieved, do you think? I'm sure it will. The pace of change has been much quicker than we expected. It wasn't so long ago that if you looked at government documents, I mean, I'm, I'm talking about probably about 15 years ago, you'd find published government documents talking about a new generation of coal power. Nobody's talking about that now. 
there's been a massive drop from coal being about 40% of our energy mix in 2012 down to being only a few percent now. So we're, we're actually most of the way there. The things that have done that are the support to renewables, taking up a bigger share of the market, limits on air pollution that have restricted what coal plants can do, and also the carbon floor price, which has had a very interesting tipping point effect. It made coal more expensive than gas in the UK system. Coal and gas were both competing for a small share of the market left by renewables, and that just really tipped coal out of the market, made it relatively unprofitable. So that's contributed to this rapid decrease and what, in fact, has been the fastest power sector decarbonisation of any country in the world. That's what the UK has managed over the last decade or so. So, yeah, I think we're on track for that. OK, that's very good news. We're, of course, living through a pandemic and there is a lot of debate at the moment about whether COVID-19 will accelerate or slow the energy transition. What do you think? Well, I think it depends on what we choose. It really could do either. In, in any of these sectors, policy is crucial to the pace of the transition. And now when so many of the economic sectors are in trouble, governments are intervening in a very significant way in different sectors. And they can do that in a way that supports transition or they can do it in a way that hinders transition. It's really up to them. Maybe this, this is a good moment to talk about a second one of our campaigns, which is in the road transport sector, because this is one that's really suffered from the current crisis and many governments are figuring out how they can support the sector. This is a really important sector, not only for its own emissions, but also the indirect effects it has on decarbonisation through the economy. One of those, of course, is batteries. Batteries are crucial for energy storage and Electric vehicles are, are, in fact, the best way that we can quickly scale up batteries and bring down their costs. When you look at this sector itself, the main barrier to countries moving faster towards zero emission vehicles, which will be eventually lower cost, as well as better for air quality in cities, the main barrier is their current cost. Even though they're cheaper to run, they're still more expensive to buy than petrol and diesel cars. But the, the best way we can change that, bring that down faster, is through the big markets setting strong regulatory trajectories, strong policy trajectories towards 100% new cars being zero emission. And if they do this together, if the largest ones act together, they'll provide such a strong signal to the industry, the industry investment will shift faster, the new clean technologies, the zero emission vehicles, the batteries will scale up faster and their costs will come down faster. And so they'll all be able to make a faster transition and an easier, cheaper transition. Of course, there, there are complexities as well. There's the charging infrastructure. There's all kinds of things that, that need to be put in place. But this is a really textbook example of where working together, we can make faster progress. Coming back to your question about COVID, in this sector, I, I think what we've seen has been quite encouraging. China has extended its subsidies for what they call new energy vehicles by another two years beyond what was expected. Germany has come in with quite a strong support package for the industry that really leans towards supporting zero emission vehicles. France and others are moving in a similar direction. So I, I think what's interesting is governments are looking at this sector and thinking we can see it's only moving in one direction. And in fact, the best way to help the industry 
is to support it in the short term in a way that's consistent with that long-term interest. It kind of ties into my next question, because governments are, of course, undertaking massive investments at the moment to revive economies that have been absolutely shattered by COVID-19. And uh, there's a lot of talk about the potential for a green recovery. But in your view, is that what we're actually seeing? Or are most of these investments being used to prop up fossil fuel-based industries and technologies? I think it's probably too soon to say. I think there's there's some of both going on. And of course, a lot of the initial measures to support the economy are kind of neutral with respect to transitions. There's like in the UK, we have the government supporting 80% of people's wages when their businesses aren't able to operate. That kind of thing, it, it's not really for or against transition. It's, it's just economic survival. I think that it may be the next stage where there is more sort of sector-specific support in many countries. And that's where significant decisions may be taken in the power sector or in transport or in other areas that either help or hinder transitions. I think it's a bit too soon to say which way that's going. But as I say, it, it's really up to us. And if you look at the analysis by the International Energy Agency, for example, then they've set out a whole load of areas where economic recovery and transition interests are incredibly strongly aligned. There's really a lot that can be done that will create jobs and bring down costs at the same time as supporting the transition. And are US COP president actively trying to influence governments to align their stimulus packages with the goals of the Paris Agreement? I mean, you mentioned the, the campaigns. I guess that's part of it. Please elaborate. It's yes, very much so. The prime minister was out there very early talking about the need to build back better. And on each of the campaigns, we are having those kind of discussions, sometimes bilaterally and, and sometimes in groups of countries. Just last week, the COP president, Alok Sharma, took part in a meeting convened by the International Energy Agency, which had most of the governments that have the largest power sectors had them around the table, as well as industry leaders, as well as some of the, the big banks. And that was a whole discussion about how can we work together to align the recovery with the transition. So it, it's a very live debate about that at the moment. and We're at the center of it as much as we can be. Is your diplomatic network involved too? Very much so, very much so. The Foreign Secretary is personally engaged. We have a COP envoy and four COP26 regional ambassadors, and then our entire network of embassies and high commissions overseas. They're all active on this. COP26 is one of their top priorities. And many of them have been working in this area for a decade or more. Climate change and energy are, are not new subjects for our embassies. They have very well-developed local relationships, partnerships, often practical projects that are going on. So, of course, right now, a, a lot of them have had to respond to the crisis. Some have had to send people home. Many of them are working with host governments that are themselves very constrained in their ability to concentrate on things other than the crisis. But on the whole, we've found that really there's a great deal of willingness and capability to keep working on climate change and energy transitions despite everything else that is happening. Of course, we've, we've all found we can do more by video meeting than we ever expected. And one of the upsides is we're finding meetings of groups of countries convened by groups like Chatham House are actually able to attract much greater international participation than we ever expected. 
I know there was one just a few days ago on Monday this week that Chatham House hosted talking about forest governance, which is incredibly important to our nature campaign. Minister Zach Goldsmith attended for us. I think there were ministers there from China, Indonesia, Congo. There's a kind of participation would have been very hard to secure in person. So there are some upsides and we're all working to make the best of, of the situation. So COVID-19 has, of course, led to the postponement of the COP, and we just spoke about kind of new ways of interacting in this new environment. But I wanted to ask you, has the pandemic impacted the COP discussions in other ways too? I mean, are countries less willing, less able to put forth ambitious NDCs because they're in economic difficulties or perhaps in debt crisis? Have the discussions on climate finance been affected? Well, I think in many of these areas, it's too soon to say what the effect will be. The most immediate thing is, of course, the postponement and by a whole year, which was really important for us because we want the COP to be something that really makes a difference, that bends the curve of global emissions, that makes a similarly significant improvement in how we're dealing with adaptation and resilience. And we need it to be an inclusive COP that countries all over the world are able to participate in. And that clearly wasn't going to be possible on any of those counts if we'd stuck to the original dates. So pushing it back still allows us to do that. And in a way, I think many of the things you mentioned will be difficult. You know, mobilizing more finance in a situation where so many countries and organizations have their budgets under pressure will be difficult. Aligning recovery and transition, even though we see very strong strategic alignment is undoubtedly going to be difficult in some places. But on the whole, I, I think there is an advantage in having longer to work on this. There's a real need, we think, for sustained cooperation in a lot of the practical challenges of climate change, like clean energy, clean transport, nature-based solutions, finance, adaptation and resilience. In each of those areas, we really need governments to be working together over the long term not just having short-term initiatives or political statements. And so none of us would have wanted to be in, in this situation we find ourselves, but one upside is we have longer to try and really embed a shared approach to sustained cooperation on each of those areas. Are there any kind of key things that could happen in the next few months that would have a really positive impact on the COP process? I mean, do you see any potential game changers on the horizon? We're, we're talking about deep fundamental change in large sectors of the global economy. And so things that are game changing take quite a while to cook. So you can look at the power sector now and many people are seeing a second tipping point. The first tipping point was where solar and wind became cheaper than coal in most countries as a new power investment. We're getting quickly towards the point, and we're already there in some countries, where solar and wind are cheaper than existing coal. That means if you already have a coal power plant, it's cheaper to build new solar and wind than it is to keep buying the coal to burn in your power plant. So that's the second tipping point. And if, if you watch what's happening in the US, then you see the effect of this economic momentum. Even though you have a government that's talking in very positive terms about coal, Coal plants have actually closed faster under Trump than they did under Obama. So that is game-changing. But you have to realize that's only game-changing now because of what was done in, in previous decades. 
So I think this this is all about building the momentum, growing it in each of these sectors and sustaining aligned action for the long term. If I could mention one of the campaigns we haven't discussed so much, but the, the nature campaign, I think one thing that we, we hope can be game-changing as an approach there is having around the same table the biggest producer countries and the biggest consumer countries of the internationally traded commodities that contribute to the large part of deforestation. This has never really been done before. You've had initiatives that tried to protect forests in the countries where they are, and you've had business-led initiatives on the demand side that tried to make sure they had deforestation-free supply chains. But you never really had a coming together of the largest producer and consumer countries where they all respected each other's interests and said, we know that economic development and trade in the producer countries is absolutely critical. And that's an interest on an equal footing with the one we all share of reducing deforestation and protecting the climate. And that's a shared problem that we have to work on together and crack. That's a part of the global economic system that will only change in a good way if we work on it together. And that's something we're trying to do. And people working in in that sector who've worked worked in it for a long time are telling us if we could pull that off, that would be game changing. So I I really hope we can manage that. And as I say, the meeting held at Chatham House earlier this week was just one example of that coming together of countries that can help us build that kind of consensus. All right. I think this is going to be my final question. If I were uh, an environment or a climate minister in a specific country and my team and I were working on updating our NDC, what would you say to convince me to be ambitious and really prioritize renewable energy? That's an interesting question. I would say that often the environment ministries in different countries, they are the ambitious ones. They would really like to have a tough target that had emissions going down instead of going up. And the difficulty often is that they have trouble convincing their colleagues in the other government departments, the departments of energy and industry and transport and agriculture and finance. And I would say to them, work with each one of those different departments to understand what are the primary drivers of policy in each of those areas? Is it energy security, food security, industrial competitiveness, or mobility, whatever it is? And then let's look at how reducing emissions or building resilience can align with those primary drivers of policy. And if you can manage to do that, that's when things start changing quickly. Simon, thank you so much for joining us. This has been really interesting and uh, good luck with your important work. Thank you. And that's it for this episode of The Climate Briefing. I hope you enjoyed listening. We will be back in about a month's time with some new interviews on a topic to be determined, but which will be a continuation of the diplomatic briefing series that Chatham House has been running throughout this year. If you've enjoyed listening to this episode, then I'd strongly encourage you to go back and listen to our back catalogue. We've got six other episodes on the feed for you there now. And please tell your friends, tell your colleagues, rate and leave a review for us on iTunes, because that is how these podcasts get discovered by new listeners. And if you want to engage more with our work on climate policy, then you can follow the Energy, Environment and Resources programme on Twitter at Chatham House underscore environment. Till next time, wish you all the best. Thanks very much. Mm -hmm.